This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled Tolerance, recorded April 10th, 1994, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. As uh, most of you know, last uh, March 20th, on Sunday, uh, Temple Beth Israel, the local Jewish synagogue, was attacked in a drive-by shooting. It was struck by nine bullets, I believe. Fortunately, no one was injured, and two uh, skinheads have been apprehended and are suspected of committing this crime. And then the following Thursday, there was a vigil, a large vigil, and then there was a, uh, a nightly vigil for, what, another week, I guess, until April 3rd to uh, show support for the temple and so forth. And Jennifer and I went to the one on Thursday. How many of you were at the one on Thursday, the vigil? Raise your hands just so I can... Jennifer and I went, and those of you who were there know there were uh, quite a few speakers. And uh, they talked about various aspects of this uh, attack. They called it appalling. Uh, they talked about racism and rights. Uh, they urged us to combat intolerance in ourselves and our community, to honor diversity, to practice respect and tolerance for others. And I've been to many meetings like this, many uh, rallies, vigils, and so forth, uh, dating back to the 60s when I was uh, very active in the uh, political and social movements of the time. And of course, I agree with the sentiments, but something troubles me with the rhetoric, and I don't mean just them, but just the, the general, uh, you might call the liberal rhetoric uh, that um, comes out around these events, and which I've heard going all the way back to the 60s. So this prompted me to do some soul-searching. Why was I troubled about it rather than just complain about it? And this uh, prompted me to start thinking about what really is uh, tolerance and intolerance from a mystical point of view. So I want to talk about some of the things that uh, troubled me and, and uh, have some discussion with you and see if perhaps you don't feel the same way and what a mystical, uh, a mystical tradition might have to say about it, a mystical teaching, I should say. The first thing that troubled me was a kind of self-righteous tone. For instance, calling this uh, appalling. And then certainly in some ways it is appalling. Every time we encounter hatred and, um, and violence, there's, it's appalling. But there's a tone as though the tolerance were a value that's obvious to everybody. That, that only a few kooks and sickies would practice intolerance. That it's something rare and shocking. Well, unfortunately, if we're going to call this appalling, what would we call the incident at Rosewood, Florida, for instance? I don't know if any of you have been listening to the news. The, there's just a court case been settled with a community of black people who during the 20s uh, was attacked and the whole community is just wiped out. Uh, eight or ten people were killed, the rest were driven into the swamp and the community just disappeared. What would we call the, the massacre at Wounded Knee when the U.S. Cavalry went in and virtually did the same thing to one of the last groups of free Lakota Indians? What would we call the Hebron Massacre? 
or the slaughter of the Israeli uh, athletes at the Olympics? What would we call my lie in Vietnam, for those of you who don't remember? What would we call the ethnic cleansing that's going on in Bosnia? What would we call Hiroshima or the bombing of Dresden? What would we call the enslavement of a whole people? As the Jews were in Egypt and Africans were in this country. What would we call something like Auschwitz? So it's not that I don't think that appalling is, um, that the incident is an appalling, but sometimes the tone of this uh, betrays our own ignorance about reality, to me anyway. It's as though hatred and intolerance were, were almost a pathological, very rare thing that, that would create this. But I tell you, in my experience of my life, it's not true. In my experience, frankly, hatred and intolerance is far more prevalent than love and tolerance. Uh, I wonder, I want to get some of your reactions to that. Do you, do you, do you have the same reaction to, uh, to hearing uh, this kind of uh, talk, this kind of reaction to an incident, which fortunately no one was hurt? And also, is it true that uh, intolerance and hatred are very prevalent? They're not unusual. Well, maybe we want to reassure ourselves sometimes. I was thinking, um, I thought in that particular incident that um, the community wanted to reassure the Jewish people, too, that such an event was not common, that um, that they, the majority of people weren't like that, and you know, we, want, we want to reassure ourselves. Ah, but <laughs> is it true the majority of people aren't like that? Well, <laughs> we want to believe, I think, that we're not like that anyway, and our friends and neighbors are not like that anyway. <laughs> I, I certainly want to believe that. I used to be so mystified about how so many people could cooperate with Hitler and what happened during World War II. And then it was just a year ago, I went through a personal crisis that led me to see the Hitler inside of me which was astonishing. Suddenly I, I realized how I could be one of them too, and I am. Um, very profound experience. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about it, or is it... Long too, story, okay. yeah. But this is a wonderful, a very interesting... <laughs> Touche. <laughs> a wonderful discovery. Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer, once said, the line that separates good and evil cuts through the whole world and through each of our own souls. We would like to believe it doesn't. We would like to believe this isn't true of us. And so I guess one of the things that bothers me is a, is a, a, a slight unwillingness to face reality. Do you know that I detect in it anyway? How about, yeah. I, I remember in the 60s, I, I grew up in a very racist family. We had John Birch Society meetings at the house. And <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> I go off to college, which was a very communist thing to do, just that. <laughs> and uh, I got really inspired by Mao and started going to the Long March bookstore to hear talks. 
in what you talked about tone, it just, it was like getting hit in the face when I went there and heard the same tone. Different words, they, they weren't uh, black people or Jews, they were communist, you know, they were imperialist lackeys, and the, the words were changed, but the tone was just exactly the same, blew me away. Mm. Same, everything, it was just, I could have been at the John Birch Society, same thing. Yeah. I think it's only a matter of scale. I think we see every day in ourselves and others this intolerance. I mean, it's the most trivial kind of thing, and it's exactly the same thing, but at an infinitesimal scale. So the seeds are there, always. In your, I mean, in your experience, right? It's just like whether it grows or not is almost an accident of whether you were born in Germany or not, as Mary's song said. Yeah. I think it's literally the same thing. And if we don't clean up the little stuff, then we're always going to have the big stuff. And yet the other part is there too. The love and the positive kind of thing. Fortunately, <laughs> we wouldn't have made it this far, I'll tell you. <laughs> This raises uh, an interesting question, because if it's not obvious to everyone that tolerance is something good, that it's a positive value, why do we think it is? And I assume everybody here does. If, if you don't, don't feel uh, embarrassed about speaking up. Why do we think tolerance is a positive value and intolerance is bad? Yeah. Because we don't want to be treated intolerantly. Do you think that applies to everybody, even people who are intolerant? Yeah. So, so everybody has this feeling, but we've, just, we've elected to say tolerance is, is good. But other people wouldn't want to be treated intolerantly. Right. In fact, it's very interesting you bring this up because I've just been doing a lot of reading about the wars of religion in Europe after the the uh, medieval Christian paradigm broke down in Europe and the Reformation came along and then uh, the Protestants split up into all these sects and there were a hundred years of, of intense Bosnia-like warfare in Europe. It's really, reading about it, it's really um, appalling uh, where masses of people were massacred overnight in towns. And in France, for instance, when the Protestants were the underdogs, when the Catholics had the upper hand in the government, the Protestants all screamed for tolerance, tolerance, religious tolerance. And uh, when as soon as they came to power, though, they turned around and massacred the Catholics. And then the Catholics were screaming for religious tolerance. So it's, it's interesting that, yes, when we are being, when we're being discriminated against, suddenly we're all for tolerance. But it doesn't seem to be necessarily a value that sticks. or And I think we would like to see it as a value that sticks in whatever situation. So that even if you were personally not being discriminated against, you would want to practice tolerance. But why? I mean, where, do, where does this value come from? And where do all values come from? Yeah. I think that we have as a higher value uh, peace and, and uh, prosperity. And we see that in order to have that, we have to stop fighting. And we cannot get that without uh, be being tolerant of our differences. Uh, yes, I think you, if you're uh, upper, middle to upper class white person in this country, you'd be very concerned about peace. 
because you have peace and prosperity. And, you know, however, if you are on the bottom of the ladder, you might not be, think peace is such a high value. For instance, the, um, the Indians in Chiapas in Mexico, um, whereas I'm, I'm sure that they are not warmongers, but they felt it necessary to take up arms to just to call attention to the injustice. There are also a class of people who don't want tolerance at any level because intolerance from the other side legitimizes their point of view. Let's ask, to try to answer this question, where does the value of tolerance come from? Let's try and ask, what is the cause of intolerance? Where does intolerance come from? What is the root cause of intolerance? And from a mystic's point of view, intolerance is born of selfishness. And by selfishness, I mean not only what we generally mean by selfishness, but I mean a self-centeredness. That the, the strategy of your life is predicated on enhancing and protecting the self. And from a mystic's point of view, this is uh, a the root delusion that causes all our suffering. But intolerance is a manifestation of selfishness, but it's a peculiar and specific manifestation of selfishness. And it's a, it's a rather complex one. Because intolerance, uh, arises from trying a, a strategy to protect a world that defines that self. Now, let me, uh, let me, go into this a little bit more deeply, especially some of you who are not so familiar with the, uh, the background of mystical teachings. All worlds, from a mystic's point of view, are imaginary. And I say worlds because when we are exposed to people from other cultures, other uh, societies, we realize that they literally live in different worlds than we do. They experience the world differently. Not only just their social institutions, but down to the way they experience what we consider uh, straightforward material reality. So, for instance, let me give you just one example uh, from the Ojibwa uh, Indian culture, which some of you have heard before. In Ojibwa Indian culture, illness is not ever an accident or a result of purely physical causes. It always has some volitional basis. And by that I mean if you are uh, ill, then there is some reason somebody has hexed you or put a curse on you, as we would say in English. Or perhaps you have transgressed some taboo, or you have uh, not performed some ritual. So the way you go about seeking a cure for your condition is, first of all, to find out the cause. You ask the question, who is responsible for my illness? And then you try to find out who's responsible, and then you either uh, make reparations or you take defensive measures or whatever. Notice how different an experience of illness that is from that experience in our culture. That's what I mean by living in a different world. The fact that we live in different, or we find these people uh, living in different worlds, uh, 
That fact is what tells us that our worlds are imaginary. They are created by imagination. They are created by thought. They are created by our uh, dividing up the world in certain ways, distinguishing things in certain ways, and then taking some things to be real and some things to be not real. This is the fundamental uh, insight of mysticism. This isn't necessarily a personal thing. It's a social construction, if you like. The whole society constructs this. It's not like uh, this isn't a teaching about you um, you create your own reality as though you could sit there and just by will create another reality. It's a whole conditioning that arises that we take to be fundamentally real when it is not fundamentally real. It is real in the sense that it has a certain existence, an appearance. It's, it's a, a, um, a set of forms that we have to deal with. But that's different than taking it to be fundamentally real. Now, this imaginary world defines what the self is in different cultures. Your culture defines your sense of self. They are completely interdependent. There is no such thing as a human self apart from a human culture or society. And again, it's hard for us to realize how differently people experience themselves in different cultures. For one reason is we take it for granted that our experience is the way things are. Let me uh, just read you a couple of uh, the little things that will at least give a clue to this difference, the way self is defined differently. For instance, we in our culture tend to locate thoughts in our head. But this is by no means universal. The Pueblo Indians, for instance, told the famous psychologist uh, Jung that white people were crazy. And when Jung asked why they thought that, the Pueblos said, well, white people say they think with their heads. No sound man thinks in the head. We think in the heart. Interesting. We associate heart maybe with emotions and feelings and so forth. But they think in their heart. That's where they would locate thinking is going on, in the heart. We generally think that our self is confined by the boundaries of our skin, our epidermis. That, that uh, this hand is still, you know, part of self up to the, the hand, but the glasses are, are not self. They're outside of self here. This is not uh, necessarily so. It's not so for the uh, Talaensi of Ghana. Anthropologist J.S. LaFontaine writes, Every Talaensi has si, S-I-I, which defines that person as a unique individual. But si also extends to an individual's tools, weapons, and other personal possessions, effectively making them an extension of that person's self. So if I'm a uh, Talensi cook, let's say, and I have a pot, that pot is part of me. Myself doesn't end it at my boundaries. Different experience of self. We think that the self is essentially mental or emotional. That our limbs, for instance, are peripheral. In other words, if you lost a finger in an accident, I worked at a paint factory, 
and this guy lost uh, three fingers. He was, in fact, he was the head of safety at the paint factory, <laughs> and he cut off three of his fingers at home with a power saw. What an accident. And, you know, he, uh, he was out for about a week, and he came back to work, and uh, he didn't feel that he lost part of his personality, his self, his essential self. And we kidded him about losing his fingers. Nobody thought that he had somehow his personality had been diminished. But again, this is not necessarily true of all peoples everywhere. Quite the opposite, for instance, is the case with the Gauka Gama of Highland New Guinea. And another anthropologist, Kay Reed, writes, To an extent which it is perhaps difficult for us to appreciate, the various parts of the body, limbs, eyes, nose, hair, and the internal organs and bodily excretions are essential constituents of the human personality, incorporating and expressing the whole in each of their several parts. It follows that an injury to any part of the body is also uh, comparable to damage to the personality of the individual sustaining the injury. If he, if this... Uh, a fellow who had lost his three fingers, had lost it in New Guinea, he would have lost something of his personality, not just three fingers. Our sense of who we are, our self-identification, is dependent on the culture we live in, the world we live in. Therefore, a threat to one's world is a threat to oneself. Any challenge to the reality of the world that you live in is indirectly a challenge to who you are because you're defined by that world. We can notice this, for instance, in uh, situations of war. The leaders may have very pragmatic reasons for going to war, protecting the oil, profits, things like that. But people don't go to war for reasons like that. When leaders want to create enthusiasm for war, they drag out things like religion, country, flag, ideals. Nobody dies for their boss, you know? You don't die for Kmart, although, practically speaking, Kmart pays your bills. But you will die for the fatherland. You will die for God and country. Losing your job doesn't, doesn't threaten your world. But the fatherland, God, country, religion, and so forth, this is what defines our world. Notice that even just the bare existence of another culture that defines reality in a different way, they don't have to come and physically attack you, insult you, do anything. The very existence of that culture calls into question the reality of your culture. Part of the basis of our belief in the reality is that everybody believes it. This is why mystics have a, such a hard time uh, communicating. Because what they say is what nobody believes. Everybody uh, around you believes something different. And if everybody believes something, nobody goes to examine it, investigate it. It's taken for granted. Well, that just must be the case. It's only when we come across people from other cultures, other societies whose reality is different, that we start to question and doubt our own. And when we start to question and doubt our own, then we start to question and doubt who we are. 
And that fills us with fear. Maybe I am not who I think I am. If I'm not who I think I am, then the whole way I'm leading my life may be based on some illusion or delusion. So from a mystic's point of view, intolerance is a manifestation of an attachment to the self, taking the self to be real and being attached to it, as that self is defined by a particular world, which is also taken to be real. Our tolerance arises from this fear that maybe this isn't how things are. Maybe I am not how I am. This is why, from mystic's point of view, intolerance and hatred and so forth are so prevalent. They are not uncommon. In a more or less homogeneous society, in a little group or clique of people where everybody thinks alike, where everybody has the same experience of the world, then it doesn't arise as often or as much because there's no threat. But when you start brushing shoulders with people who are different, then it starts to arise. That fear rises up. Who was talking about the seeds planted in everyone? The seeds. And the conditions that make them sprout are the conditions of coming into contact with people who are different. Notice, and let me say this as a little digression, notice this really has nothing to do with skin color. You know, my mother, she considers herself a liberal, and um, as things go, growing up in this society in this century, she was, primarily. And she, we lived in New York, and uh, she was an advertising director at Bonwit Teller. She was fairly sophisticated, upper middle class. And she once said to me, in my teenage years, when I was, you know, uh, excited about the, the black movement in this country and the civil rights movement and so forth, she said, you know, it's not has nothing to do with skin color. If I'm at a party or somebody and I meet a black man and he's well-dressed and he's educated and you know what I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable and happy with it. But a ghetto black is a totally different thing. Why? That, that black person's entered her world. Lives like she does, thinks like she does. Do you see what I mean? That's what frightens us. And then, of course, because we're lazy, we tend to categorize, you know, everybody. So everybody's black, then they're all the same. I tell you another story that's interesting about this. Our, our blindness to our own, what's going on in our side ourselves. I worked at a, uh, uh, for a while in San Francisco at a, um, a garment manufacturer, a uh, small garment manufacturer's company. And uh, I was a truck driver, and I spent a lot of time on the loading dock, loading garments in to take them down to, to Chinatown where they were sewn up, bringing them back. And I got to be uh, to know this guy who worked on the loading dock. He was in charge of the loading dock. His name was Eddie, I think. And he was, uh, I would say, uh, about 50, and he was a little bit like Archie Bunker, those who remember the Archie Bunker show. He kind of looked like him and talked like him. And he did not like black people. And he would always, uh, if, if there was a car parked in the, in the entrance to the loading dock, he would say, uh, I, I'll bet that some nigger parked it there. And, you know, anything would go wrong, he would blame it on the, quote, niggers and so forth. He also had a best friend, whose name I forgot, I think it was maybe something like John. And he would always talk about John, how John and I this weekend, we went fishing, and John and him went bowling, and John and him did this, and so forth, and then and so forth. And this went on for several months, and one day John showed up. 
and he's black. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and Eddie introduced me, you know, and this and that, and, you know. And then the next time I heard Eddie say something about the niggers, and I said, Eddie, how can you talk this? Your best friend is black. And he said, well, he's different. He's different. John thinks like Eddie. I don't know how they met or, you know, what the background was. Interesting, isn't it? So this brings up a second thing, though, that troubles me a little bit about this anti-intolerance rhetoric, and I think somebody's already mentioned it here. When we denounce intolerance, we often do so in a way that sounds very intolerant. John mentioned that, going to the John Birch Society meetings, then going to communist meetings, and you can almost just substitute the words, you know. It's the, the pinko reds or the, uh, the imperialist running dogs. And, and this, let me read you uh, some examples of this right out of our own local paper, the Register Guard. These were letters written to the editor after this incident at uh, Temple Beth Israel. Here's one. I think the solution is to put all skinheads on an uninhabited island with as many assault weapons as we can round up and let them enjoy themselves. <laughs> As another gentleman writes, I became overwhelmed with the pride for the Eugene Police Department and their dedication to keeping this community safe from these scumbags. <laughs> we ought to put a, oh, somebody mentioned Singapore here, yes. We ought to put a little of the Singapore punishment on these guys that did this stuff. I think we ought to cane their butts. I think that would be a hell of a lot better than putting them in jail for a while. Here's another one. If we're going to have capital punishment in this country, it should apply to hate crimes. <laughs> I really hope they throw the book at them. Now, they're not all like this. For instance, here's a quite, I thought, a very interesting one. My suggestion about the skinheads is to get them Jewish defense lawyers who are understanding and interested in, ch in changing these kids around so that the young men can see what humanists they've chosen to defile. It slips into this word defile here, which again is interesting. That comes from a sort of a religious taboo background, you know, to be defiled by people. But that's an interesting approach, isn't it? In fact, Jennifer, you told me that story about that you read about this um, Jewish couple that befriended or took in this Nazi. Do you remember about that? There was an article in the paper yeah. about um, a couple that was um, harassed by someone. I think was that was Jewish, it, right. And they ended up going to visit him, and they talked together, and they ended up becoming friends, and they ended up taking care of him. Because he was paralyzed or something, yeah. It's a, we'll get into that. That's a very different approach than this caning and scumbag, and you know. There is this tone sometimes that arises of intolerance. So, but this brings up an interesting question, that if all worlds are imaginary, and we have a certain set of values, what makes our values better than other people's values? How can we judge values in this situation if everything's imaginary? Is it all just relative? I mean, every culture's values are equally important and equally valid as everybody else, every other culture's, every individual's values equally valid as everybody else's. What makes skinhead values bad or wrong? Or racist values or worldviews or whatever? I mean, sometimes we talk about honoring diversity. That's a big one these days. Do we honor racists? Do we honor skinheads? <laughs> I mean, if we want to talk about diversity, this is diversity. 
What, what, really, what does it mean? Is there a way of judging values? Can we, in ourselves at least, find some certainty about our values? Because, you know, if you're not certain about your values, you're at a great disadvantage to a skinhead who's very certain about his or hers. Yeah, Seems like it just has to come back to the selfishness versus selflessness in terms of how you judge the values. Ultimately. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? Or? No, that's not what I had to say. <laughs> well, I was going to say the same thing, that selflessness would be a good way to, to judge things, judge values, and, and skinheads who are acting in a really selfish selfish way, I mean, they, they do deserve some sort of punishment. I mean, it's, the social order has to be preserved to some extent. I mean, it isn't, anarchy isn't an answer either. But, uh, if you can, if you can judge selflessly, uh, I mean, try, try the best you can, and then you can, you can act, you know, in a way that <clears throat> can be harsh and but let's be, let's dig in this more. Why is being selfless better than being selfish? I mean, that's a value call right there. It's less diluted. <laughs> well, we're not absolutely sure about that. I mean, that, that. That would get you in a great argument with a, a Nazi or something. But, uh. <laughs> to me, if you're, you know, if you think of the concept of the hand, the unity of the hand and then all the different fingers, if one finger is trying to kill off the other finger, it's going to hurt the whole hand. So you have to contain it, but you don't want to turn around and, you know, chop off that finger either. I mean, there's a unity underneath all that, so that one part can't be hurt without hurting the whole. Yeah, but you can also make an argument that, you know, if one finger is gangrenous, you have to chop that finger <laughs> off to save the rest of the hand. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but why is selflessness better than selfishness? All the people I grew up around who were very racist, they didn't think they were selfish or self-centered. I mean, they were very willing to sacrifice anything for the cause. Ah, very interesting, yes. But notice what happens here. When you sacrifice yourself in war and so forth for your fatherland, your motherland, your religion, your country, and so forth, you are really protecting yourself your self-identity. It is. It comes from uh, selfishness. Often. I won't say always. Often. It comes from the sense that your life now has value. In fact, it's almost a, a confirmation of the value of your life as it's defined by the culture. And the, the proof of this is, is that we honor those who do. We build monuments to them. Uh, do you know what I mean? Uh, and this was dates way back to the time of Homer. To have your songs sung about you after your death was the greatest honor you could, you know, the greatest thing a warrior aspired to. You will live on in the memory of your people as a great uh, warrior. So, you know, this is, it's not necessarily that an act of some physical deprivation that is truly selfish. This is, it's more complicated and complex than that. But who would, you know, who would judge that? Whether they're selfish or not, I mean, they would certainly not judge themselves as being selfish. No, they wouldn't. It takes this. This was all predicated on a little self-investigation here. You know? <laughs> uh, 
the reason from a mystic's point of view is quite simple, actually, although it has very complex forms. Selfishness leads to suffering, causes suffering. The more that you believe that you are this limited, defined self, no matter how your culture defines it, and it can be very different, the more attached to that you are, the more you are going to suffer because that is ephemeral and impermanent. It is going to die. It is going to dissolve. And if you are that, you are in a world of trouble because that means you are going to die and dissolve. Selflessness, on the other hand, and I mean selflessness in terms of the realization that self is actually imaginary, it is not truly who you are, and selflessness as an expression of that wisdom in action leads to the end of suffering and happiness. Now, how can we be certain about this? Brian raised the question, is there any absolute certainty? From a mystic's point of view, a, a mystical teaching includes methods by which mystics claim you can be certain about this beyond any shadow of a doubt. That's what pursuing a spiritual path is all about. I can't make you certain by any argument. No one else can make you certain, but you can find out for yourself beyond any shadow of a doubt. In the meantime, what we have to go on is the teaching of all mystics in all religions. And what we find here is suddenly an intersubjective agreement, as it's called nowadays, that transcends cultures and societies. A true intersubjective agreement, which doesn't then give us absolute certainty, but at least should be persuasive. At least it should cause us to sit up and take notice. Maybe these crazy kooks are actually have something to say that is in a certain sense, objectively real, that transcends all these uh, different societies and cultures. For instance, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. You know, if you only hear that, within the context of a Christian tradition, especially how it's interpreted largely today, you won't get the full import of it. When you listen to it in terms of what other mystics have said, though, it starts to shed some light on this. The only way to find happiness is to let go of self, not to cling to self, the opposite of what we normally do. This is why Ananda Moyamai, and she was a great uh, mystic of the Hindu uh, tradition of this century, she says, as long as the sense of me and mine remains, there is bound to be sorrow and want in the life of the individual. If permanent abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. As long as there is the sense of me and mine, of self, there's bound to be unhappiness. There's bound to be suffering. This is why Catherine of Genoa, this great Christian saint, she says, once stripped of all its imperfection, the soul rests in God with no characteristics of its own, since its purification is the stripping away of the lower self in us. 
this whole idea that this lower self, this finite self, this false imaginary self is the cause of suffering. We, we don't have to be too concerned about the fact she used the term God, Ananda Moyamai used the term that which is eternal, and she might say Brahman in some other place, or Allah or whatever. All these words mean some absolute and infinite and boundless reality, as opposed to a limited and bounded reality. Why is this stripping away necessary? Well, a Hasidic master has a wonderful way of putting it. He says, God is without limit. Endless is his name. How can any finite vessel hope to contain the endless God? Therefore, see yourself as nothing. Only one who is nothing can contain the fullness of the presence. See, aren't we hearing the same teaching from different different cultures, different perspectives, but it's the same teaching. This is what I mean by selflessness, not necessarily your idea of a a goody-goody Boy Scout or Girl Scout. It's a fundamental realization about a fact of reality, according to the mystics. And I always say that because you are never to take their word for it, but perhaps you will get interested enough to try to find out for yourself. The Buddhist Lakamatara Sutra says about enlightenment in Buddhism, There has been an inconceivable transformation death by which the false imagination of his particularized individual personality has been transcended by a realization of his oneness with the universalized mind of the Tathagata, from which realization there will be no recession. It's only through this death, which is a common image in many mystical traditions, the death of the self, that this realization of the reality of the oneness with this endless and soft, endless, boundless universal mind comes about. In Sufism, it's called union. The condition of union means that God controls me, not I myself, in my actions. For God exists, not I. Now, now we look back at what Jesus said, and we start to understand why, he says, only if you lose your life would you truly gain life. If you cling to your life, you're going to lose it. So while we cannot arrive at absolute certainty through any sort of argument or whatever, we do have a body of testimony that stretches back into the dawn of human history. This transcultural, transsocial, that tells us that selfishness creates suffering, selflessness creates happiness. There's no mystery about why values based on selflessness are good. They bring about happiness. That's our definition of good. And values based on selfishness bring about suffering. So, on that basis, we can say intolerance is bad. Intolerance is based on this desire to enhance and protect the self from others, from the threat that others pose. But what can we do about it? We already mentioned the seeds of intolerance are sown all through our lives. They're not just out there on some Nazis overtly. Mary Song talked about this discovery, Hitler is within And this brings up the third and last thing that troubles me sometimes about the rhetoric we hear at rallies like this. 
In speaking of intolerance in ourselves, we are often urged to clean house, to root out racist thoughts, to banish prejudice from our lives. As though this could be accomplished by some sort of act of will, like you could make a New Year's resolution. And at least I always come away with this image that we're going to, whenever we encounter racist thoughts, we're going to attack them. We're going to suppress them. We're going to deny them. Now again, i got to tell you, in my experience, this doesn't work. I've heard this now for, you know, 20, 60, 30 years. I wonder if it's really the wisest approach. I, I had noticed also other things, side reactions, when people go about it this way. For instance, a tremendous sense of guilt for the person who's trying to uh, banish racist thoughts from their mind. Sometimes denial. It's painful to see them and people <laughs> won't look. Shame. In, in the 60s, we used to, there was a phenomenon we used to call um, white liberal guilt. People got so guilty that they actually became stupid and uh, often unscrupulous black leaders, and there were some, took advantage of them. Anything that came out of a black person's mouth was true and wise and good because the whites felt so guilty. Is this really the best way to do it? Sometimes we feel so bad about ourselves that then we project that onto people who are intolerant. And at least I believe that this is what causes that tone we talked about earlier of intolerance. They're scumbags, these skinheads. They're, they're uh, vermin. They're lice, you know? Well, here, what are you doing? You're dehumanizing. Do you know what I mean? You're denying that this is anything that has to do with you. It's, it's the same dynamic at work here. Is there another way? We can actually utilize the very practices that we do uh, in, a, in our spiritual practice. This is what they're for. For instance, I give you, I got a little proposed four step program. Step programs are in these days. So I got a little four step program. <laughs> Short one, yes. Well, they get, you know, 12 steps. You'd never remember them. All this has to be done, you know, quickly. First thing, pay attention. Let me mention the first thing you have to do is notice it. Pay attention. This requires a little humility. You have to admit you're not perfect. You have to admit you have not risen above the, all the Nazis and scumbags in the world. You have to admit you might be still down there. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's difficult. Nobody you laugh, but it's difficult for most people to do. Okay. Prejudice thoughts will arise. If you're honest, and if you watch, they will. They will. They will arise. Instead of suppressing them and attacking them and denying them, which is often the liberal reaction, so to speak, have the courage to stay with them. Just the way we do when we practice in meditation, thoughts arise. Stay with it. What, does it. what is the thought, the nature of thought? What does it feel like? The feelings that go with it. Realize that this is suffering. Right there, you will see. Don't push them away. 
watch the thought carefully and realize its empty nature. This requires a commitment. Realize its ephemeral nature. This thought that arises, that creates this suffering, that arouses these feelings, and if you're a, a, still an, an, an addicted racist, they will arouse feelings of hatred. If you are a racist in recovery, they will arouse feelings of guilt. <laughs> <laughs> but they still are suffering. Both are suffering. Guilt is suffering, too. This, this is predicated on something imaginary. The thought that arose. Something imaginary. When you see the nature of this thought, it will no longer be so threatening. Realize that it is conditioned. And if you're a meditator, one of the reasons we meditate is to see how much the mind has a mind of its own. If you are so identified with your thoughts, and every thought that arises, you're going to say, this is me, I'm a horrible, terrible person. If you realize that thoughts are conditioned, they arise and they pass and they are not me, and you don't identify with them, then that suffering will abate, whether it's suffering from hatred or suffering from guilt. That's practicing detachment in relation to thought. And finally, surrender. Don't generate related thoughts, such as what a rotten person I am. Well, just create more. Or uh, uh, what a rotten person, if you're an unrepentant racist, <laughs> they are. Or start wondering, gee, am I really a racist? Does this really mean I'm a racist? And you know, no. Watch the, the nature of the thoughts you're getting hooked into this imaginary process that's going on. Let them pass. Let them pass, and you will find when they pass, there's a little free space opens up. It's hard to see at first. A little free space opens up. In that space is natural love, compassion, joy. Try to then act out of that space if an action is called for. Spontaneously. It's not a counter-program. It's to see the nature of this conditioning, the nature of these thoughts, to recognize that they will arise and let them pass. So just by applying our four principles, paying attention, not turning away when racist thoughts arise, making a commitment to stay with them, to examine them, to see their true nature. That's just empty, conditioned babble going on. To practice detachment, don't engage them either by encouraging them, by saying, well, yes, I'm justified in being a racist, but probably more for this group, by getting all involved in thinking what a rotten person you are or whatever. <clears throat> You're just feeding them. Just let them pass. You might even apply a little compassion to the thought, actually. Here's a suffering being arising. And then let it go. Let it go, let it go, and see. In that place of when thoughts are let go, that means that mean no thoughts, more thoughts aren't going to arise. Thoughts always arising out of this unconditioned place, this spontaneous place.
Try it and see. This is what putting spiritual principles into practice is all about. As for encountering intolerance in others, <laughs> this is a far more complex uh, subject than you brought up justice and we get into all sorts of things. Uh, but it does, we could say quickly, it has two dimensions to it. One is a social dimension, that is the subject of justice and, and whatnot, and the other is a personal dimension, that is when you yourself encounter intolerance going on. We can say, and, and we, uh, and you should not be embarrassed to say that you believe this value of tolerance is, is better than intolerance. And you can give reasons. And you can point to the teachings of these transcultural, intersubjective teachings of all the mystics. It's not just a matter of opinion. And when somebody says, oh, don't you honor diversity? No, at least I don't honor diversity in that sense. I do not honor Nazis. I might have compassion for the human being there, but I do not honor Nazism. Let me put it that way. And I'm not afraid to say, if that makes, makes me not honor diversity, well, then so be it. But there's an interesting thing here. We cannot force people to adopt our values from a spiritual point of view. It just does not work. Just like you can't force someone to go on a spiritual path. It's not a question, I mean, it's not even a question of, well, if you could, would you? It just, it's in the nature of things that won't work. People have to be converted and I mean conversion here as a turning about in the heart and mind, not necessarily getting some water sprinkled on you. It has to be something that happens inwardly. This is recognized, by the way, in all the traditions, even though there have been, um, of course, gross violations of it. It was never the policy, for instance, of the Catholic Church all through the Middle Ages to convert anybody by the sword, including Jews and Muslims. Sometimes the Crusaders got carried away. They recognize this. You cannot force someone to accept Christ. It's a matter of grace. It's a matter between them and God. In Islam, all the way up through to this century, we're even much more so than Christians, very tolerant of Christians and Jews living in their communities. It was never the a policy of these religions to convert anyone by the, by the sword. They sometimes made it difficult for people to live in their midst. They sometimes drove them out, as was the case in Spain, and so forth, imposed taxes on them and whatnot. But the fundamental principle is still true. You cannot, you cannot force anybody into conversion. Everybody has to be allowed to find their own way, including skinheads. And then we get into the social dimension, as long as they do not hinder others. And sometimes, and I'm not going to get into a long discussion about this, but this is the basis of social justice, and sometimes people think mystics uh, don't care about social justice or think any action in the world, field of the world is uh, futile and so forth. It's not true, as if you read more closely. <clears throat> Many mystics were politically active and socially active, and I think uh, this one passage from the Buddha probably sums up the best what a mystic's point of view is. The Tathagata, by the way, for those who don't know, Tathagata is just another name for Buddha. The Tathagata says, He who deserves punishment must be punished, and he who is worthy of favor must be favored. 
Yet at the same time, he teaches to do no injury to any living being, but to be full of love and kindness. These injunctions are not contradictory. For whosoever must be punished for the crime which he has committed suffers his injury not through the ill will of the judge, but on account of his own evil doing. His own acts have brought upon him the injury that the executor of the law inflicts. And the Blessed One continued, The Tathagata teaches that all warfare in which man tries to slay his brother is lamentable, but he does not teach that those who go to war in a righteous cause after having exhausted all means to preserve the peace are blameworthy. He must be blamed who is the cause of war. The Tathagata teaches a complete surrender of self, but he does not teach a surrender of anything to those powers that are evil, be they men or gods or the elements of nature. Struggle must be, for all life is a struggle of some kind. But he that struggles should look to it, lest he struggle in the interests of self against truth and righteousness. He who struggles in the interest of self, so that he himself may be great or powerful or rich or famous, will have no reward. But he who struggles for righteousness and truth will have great reward, for even his defeat will be a victory. Pretty powerful words from the Buddha, isn't it? Laws must be made, and laws must be obeyed. There will be no civilization or society whatsoever to pursue any spiritual path in if they aren't. And we are all responsible for participating in that process. But, this is the key thing here. Are we doing it for selfish reasons or for selfless reasons? That's the whole question. That's the spiritual question. That's the basis, the principle at work in morality. Now let's talk about the personal dimension to encountering intolerance bigots in others, or intolerance in others, bigots. I'm talking about very practically, you know, on the job or whatever. And let's limit this to people who are not breaking the law. Obviously, if somebody is breaking the law, shooting at a a church or a temple or something, you call the police. And that's one thing you do right away. But I'm talking about a situation where nobody's breaking the law, nobody's beating up on somebody. It's just you're encountering that hatred and that intolerance. Yeah. It was very interesting. It's interesting to me when uh, Measure 9 was about to be voted on, and uh, I saw some people at work that actually wore badges, yes, on 9. You know? And that, like, shocked me because, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it, really. I, just was, I was amazed because it just felt too much out there, you know. That's how they feel, well, fine, you know, for certain reasons. They, they probably have good reasons, but uh, it just kind of scared me. It almost seemed like they they would be the type to drag gays out of their jobs and hang them up and you know, do that kind of thing. Fear. Notice it scared you. Yeah. Fear. Well, that's for, again. You want to see what is what are you reacting from? Do you have to pay attention? Notice. Oh, fear. Here's fear. <clears throat> I was thinking of um, an incident when Brian and I were riding up 
to his parents' house, and we took his auntie D with us to um, go eat, I guess, Thanksgiving or Christmas or something, I can't remember, but... And Brian started talking about the OCA and Measure 9 and stuff, and I thought, oh no, let's not bring this up. <laughs> and Brian's aunt um, was a supported the OCA and uh, and Measure 9 and stuff, and I just thought, I don't want to talk about this. I, I, I was really aware that um, I, didn't, I didn't want to deal with it, and I wanted to just, you know, cruise over difficult spots of disagreement and, um, and stuff. And, and, um, and I was kind of, and, and she was in the middle. And, and so I was, I could be kind of, you know, looking out the window or whatever, but, <laughs> <laughs> but actually it turned out to be really a positive thing. And I think it's something that you've taught me many times in the past about, um, dealing with people that, you disagree with uh, about remaining detached and open to what they have to say. And so Brian was arguing with his aunt, but not um, in any kind of, well, there was some passion on your part, I think, but not in um, a rejecting way. He would ask her, how she felt about certain examples. Like you asked her about how she, if it was like black people um, being not being able to be served in a restaurant because, um, and things like that. Asking her, you know, just how her views went and if it was like this or like that. or And then he'd point out, is it, he'd ask, is it fair? Is, and, and actually I, I thought you did a really great, I was, I admired what you did. I don't think I could have easily done it, but, but he accepted what his aunt thought and he didn't reject her personally for what she said or did, but simply tried to, it was a conversation between two people who had very different points of view. And, and well, I was trying to get her to think about her own, why she believed, what she believed. Mm -hmm. So I was asking this whole series of questions. And, and I mean, it, but it taught me something too, because I realized how hard it is for me to do something like that. Um, I, I get real angry at, at, I mean, if it had been me and, and your auntie D had wanted to press her point of view, I probably would have gotten real angry and, and denounced her. And you never did that. And I, I thought that was pretty good. And it helped me to see that there are possibilities for engaging people in dialogue who, even who have these very, I guess, prejudiced or rigid points of view, but you don't have to converse with them in rigid and um, dogmatic ways, even when it, you know, brings out conflicts in yourself. And that's, I think that's real hard. It's real hard for me. Now, see, between you, you just, I have another little five-point program to offer. You just, you just meant that the first two things exactly right. But look, they're spiritual things. Mm -hmm. The first thing is to pay, is to apply the first four points to yourself. Pay attention to yourself. Whenever you encounter somebody who's bigoted or whatnot, notice fear arising, as Jim said. You know, I got frightened, or your own intolerance, your own emotions and angers. Notice them, thoughts arising, let them pass, and so forth. Try to get to that open space. And then what? 
make an inquiry. This is just what he did, right? Why is this person bigoted? You know what I mean? Why are they full of hate? You can't always have the opportunity to sit there and, and, and you know, inquire in that sense. And how you do an inquiry is depends entirely on the circumstances. And you may never get to that point because it may be somebody just driving by who, you know, hollers some slogan. But really, inquiry here isn't a formal, you know, going around with a, a list of things. But try to, to find out about that person. What are they afraid of? You know, what is the, where does their hatred come from? If you can, I mean, this is wonderful. Ask questions is a wonderful way of making inquiry. There's a whole difference in the world to sincerely ask people questions and preach at them. And you know yourselves from your own reactions. You don't like to be preached at. But if someone is honestly inquiring, trying to understand you, you're much more uh, willing and able to open up. Uh, meditate. And the answers, in this case, translate that to listen. Don't be just waiting to get to the next question so you can make a point. You have to listen to people, even bigots. You really have to listen. Sometimes if you're in a situation, you may have to listen for a long time. And it may constantly be stirring up emotions like you described, you know what I mean? And then you have to go back to watching that intolerance in yourself, practicing that. Really listen. Practice the precept of charity. Charity means, and in our precept, charity is to share not only your material resources, but your spiritual resources. Is there any way you can help them spiritually? And it's out of, if you can, out of love and compassion, because there's a suffering being here. And finally, devotion. And devotion, in this case, means touching their suffering really if you can if you can feel the same fear that do you know what I mean in them that you're experiencing when you find someone is uh you know voted for measure nine or is a skinhead or something do you know what I mean then you have that is what true compassion is to suffer with that is what that's how tr what true devotion to other human beings comes from it's based on this true uh compassion so if you just apply, just remember, inquiry to find out about them. Meditation to really, truly listen to them. Practicing the precept of charity. You're not, your own interests aren't at stake here. You're trying to help them. And finally, devotion. Finding that, that commonality. We all, human beings, suffer. We all experience fear. We all experience this. We all want to be happy. And, you know, this you may not get very far in every instance, so what? If you've done the best you can in whatever situation, no blame. No blame. That's all you can do. Somebody drives by in a car, you know, and, and yells, you know, uh, I don't know, sending women back to the kitchen and they're gone. You may be left there feeling, uh, but you didn't have a chance to do anything. God did not give you an opportunity. Okay. No blame. This may sound uh, like a drop in the bucket. And sometimes people go around and think about this and you think about, 
Bosnia and the Middle East and uh, in, in our own community. There's an article this morning about child abuse. And uh, Jennifer and I and Barry heard a woman talk last night about child abuse. And just uh, and it seems overwhelming. And then this seems kind of difficult. I mean, to really, how many human beings can really do this? And sometimes that can be very discouraging, and we tend to give up. And there was one speaker at the vigil uh, whose words I think are well worth remembering, not that others weren't. And this was Pastor Alides Beckham, is that your pastor's name? She's a pastor at St. Mark's Methodist Episcopal Church. And she asked this question. She said, are you here for the wedding or for the marriage? And she explained what she meant. She said, the wedding is all hoopla. It's over tomorrow. The marriage is the hard part. That's the nuts and bolts. The marriage takes a long time. Remember what I said? A long time. This is a good description not only of how to overcome intolerance, it's a good description of the whole spiritual path. And not just a personal spiritual path, of humanity's whole spiritual path. Humanity's spiritual adventure, and we could call it that, is not going to end tomorrow. It's not going to be resolved by any utopian schemes. It's an adventure that has taken the entire species, the energy of the entire species. It is the adventure of an entire species. It's an adventure that stretches over thousands and thousands of years. It's an adventure that takes millions of forms as each individual goes through it. even though it's an adventure that takes millions of forms and stretches over thousands of years, and is the adventure of an entire species, it's only happening to one subject. And that subject is you. So in a certain sense, truly speaking, we have no choice. This, in a sense, is who we are in a relative sense. We are that mysterious creature that is walking this path towards that mysterious end. That's what it's all about. So if you do get discouraged or feel despair and so forth, remember that. Put it in that context. Well, it was a good discussion this morning, I thought. Anybody have anything more to add or Well, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close then? And you're all welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library. Peace to you all. <laughs>